You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where in order to avoid mockery, I decided not to go with the song choice of single ladies, put a ring on it. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, 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 and the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire, the ring of fire Hello and welcome to another ring-slinging episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Pretty soon we're going to be getting to Kyle Rayner. I bet a bunch of you people are excited for that. But first of all, we have to deal with Hal Jordan, who, if you're looking at the cover of Green Lantern number 49, isn't having the best of days. In fact, he looks a bit manic. He's got a bunch of rings from probably lanterns he may have killed. Hal's in a bad way. And we're going to see exactly how he got all those rings in our coverage of the book. Plus, we've got a incredibly 1990s version of Guy Gardner and his new series, Warrior. And looking at the cover of that, it's definitely the 90s. Ugh, guys are. But we'll get to both the coverage of Guy Gardner, Green Lantern, and your letters that you've written in. Uh, one of them uh, kind of important to me, uh, from a certain professor, a friend of mine. But we'll get to all of that right after I play a couple of promos for some of my favorite podcasts out there. Podcasts that you definitely should be listening to as well. So, listen to the promos, stick around, and get to the comics right after the break. Burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire, the ring of fire. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. 
In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the last son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, 75, the Celebration, Celebration of a Legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The Celebration of a Legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. And what you just heard was Michael Bailey, who, ironically, is going to be doing a bunch of Superman podcasts for the 75th birthday of the Man of Steel. Kind of odd, Michael Bailey doing that. In a way that isn't in any way, shape, or form, as Michael Bailey is perhaps the biggest Superman fan out there. But definitely go check out Views from the Long Box. Even when Michael isn't doing podcasts about Superman, Views is pretty much his very personal podcast and it's really a good listen check it out definitely and with plugs for other shows out of the way we're going to go ahead and reach into the mailbag and see what kind of letters the listeners to this show who are wonderful and awesome have written in to say about it you've got mail 
pattern baldness. <laughs> and the first letter this time around is from Professor Allen, the lover of Doctor Doom and the co-host of the Book Guys podcast. Go check it out at bookguys.ca, I believe, not .com. Uh, Professor Allen has the title of this uh, email called You Are Mentioned, which I'm glad it made through my spam filter. Uh, Professor Allen says, if that subject line did not cause you to immediately delete this email, I invite you to see the results of my own personal podcast awards. And he gives a link here to his podcast site, which is uh, http colon backslash backslash eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com. That's all one word. And uh, uh, he gave me the link. I will put it in the show notes. But <laughs> Professor Allen basically made my year. He has his own little uh, podcast award where he listens to a lot of podcasts over the year. And he uh, did his own little uh, version of a podcast award show. Uh, some of the categories were favorite podcast I've been on, which uh, ended up being the Book Guy Show. Favorite overall podcast, which was the Tolkien Professor. Uh, and surprisingly enough, uh, the best new podcast of 2012 was this one, which totally and honestly was the most amazing shock that I could have ever gotten. Granted, it's not a big named podcast award thing, but the fact that Professor Allen, who I deeply respect and am proud to call a friend on the internet, has decided to even, you know, much less listen to the show, but even blog about it and say that he, it was his favorite new podcast of 2012. Just, it, it made my week. It made my, it made my year. Professor Allen, thanks. Uh, I wrote back to him telling how uh, humbled I was by this and how amazing it was that he actually listens to it. And of course, Professor Allen responded, well, I was going to go with just the, quote, he's a dude that managed to put out a podcast every week award, but that just didn't seem grandiose enough for Guy. So, yeah, uh, at least I didn't get the uh, dude who managed to put out a podcast every week award. That that probably would have been a bit more appropriate, though. But thank you, Professor Allen. That was really wonderful. I, I can't say enough about how how proud this makes me. Th thank you again. Jeez, I guess now I can officially say that I'm an award-winning podcaster. Uh, wait till my wait till my wife hears about that and she'll smack me down. So <laughs> get rid of that ego. Our next email was from the awesome podcaster Mr. Dave Walker, host of Flash Legacies, who Dave get more episodes out. I want to hear Flash Legacies. You are an awesome podcaster, please. Oh. I miss it. Uh, but he writes in with the uh, title, birthday, question mark. He says, hey, Sean, for some reason I've, I have it in my head that you mentioned that your birthday was yesterday on one of your shows somewhere. Uh, this was around the 1st of January. Uh, if I'm wrong, I, I've still missed it for whatever it was in 2012, so this is belated happy birthday along with a happy new year message. Also, I hope you enjoyed whatever winter-type holiday you had and that you at least got some nice things from it even if that all it was was a relaxing day away from work. Well, thanks, Dave. I did get a relaxing day away from work, uh, and I talked to him. I got some Christmas and birthday presents around, so it was all a good time. Uh, thanks, Dave, for the uh, birthday wishes. I really appreciate that. And come on, Dave, more Flash Legacies. I, I love the show. Please. It's awesome. 
The next letter comes from wonderful Canadian listener Scott Davis. Scott writes in, Hi, Sean. Hey, Scott. How you doing? Just finished Animal Dawn 1 and had a few comments. I hope I'm not bugging you too much with my emails, but it's nice to send this stuff out to you to get it off my chest, so to speak. Scott, do not feel in any way at all uh, embarrassed or uh, that you're bugging me with these emails. I love getting these. It's, you know, feedback between myself and listeners, like I've said before, validates what I'm doing. And I'm glad that you're actually enjoying these comics and my babbling on about them as, as, a lot, go, as something to go on with them. So, uh, Scott's email continues. And we'll die. Excellent origin story. I thought it was very interesting that Howe was drinking and driving, which led to his buddy eventually dying in the hospital. Quote, unquote. None of this was, none of this was my fault. It was the sign. Quote, unquote. I think the Dio thought it was sinful because of this quote. Even in issue two, he continues, I'm not going to take the fall for this whole thing. Not for that sign. Looking back at it now, it was a terrible ideal to have Howe blame the sign for his drinking and driving accident. Times have changed, and I know especially in British Columbia, we have new tight rules that basically don't allow you to have any drinks if you're going to drive. If you could be over the limit with one or two drinks if you drive shortly after. But talking about sinful, I think the Dio's new version of The Phantom Stranger is pretty sinful himself. Ah. Unfortunately, I haven't read The Phantom Stranger. I know uh, Thomas DJ is a big fan of him, and I will ask him if he's read anything about the new Phantom Stranger, but... Yeah, again, with Emerald Dawn, I don't think Hal was necessarily an alcoholic. I do think what he did was wrong. Obviously, it got all his friends injured and actually got someone killed. But uh, if it were Hal actually having a drinking problem, actually being an alcoholic and going out and driving, and not just having a really bad day and having to atone for it, I'd feel a bit worse about it. Uh, not saying that it's excusable for what he did, but I'm saying that it's not like how was, you know, always drinking and was constantly drunk and had a big problem. Back to Scott's email, he goes, "Whoa! Even the murders of the cop, even the murders of the cops in issue two was brutal, even if it was off screen." I agree. That's one of the nice things about these comics; they can do brutality, but they don't have to show dura matter splattered all over the page. Legion is a cool, funny-looking villain. His creation was kind of weird, but I guess it works. The training montage in issue 4 was excellent. And finally, a cool ending. I like how Hal goes straight to jail to pay for his crime. The whole throwing the ring thing away from when his plane was going down was kind of weird, but the walking away from the explosion was awesome. As mentioned before, cool guys always walk away from explosions. Scott continues, looking forward to Emerald Dawn 2. I just ordered a bunch of the Guy Gardner Warrior series, so I'm looking forward to reading that soon, too. Later, Scott. Well, cool. I hope you enjoy the Guy Gardner series. I've been enjoying them as well. Uh, going back to read them has been really fun, and I'm glad that you're uh, getting some enjoyment out of this. Emerald Dawn is a great origin story, and uh, I think it actually... Well, I can't say that it beats Secret Origins, because I haven't read Secret Origins. But... Maybe I'm just biased. I think uh, the actual Emerald Dawn is the way to go with uh, telling the origin story of Hal Jordan. And it's the one that works for me. I wrote back to Scott with my uh, thoughts about Hal Jordan uh, actually at the end of Emerald Dawn taking responsibility for his actions, that leading to the story in Emerald Dawn 2, 
And Scott wrote back to me, again saying, Hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. Uh, he says great points about Hal coming to the realization that he has to take responsibility for his actions in the end of the Emerald Dawn number one. To play devil's advocate a bit, on page two of Emerald Dawn 2, he's still thinking that he got the shaft. I guess he still hasn't been trained at this point yet. He still goes to prison thinking that he got stomped on, and that if he had a hotshot lawyer, he'd probably been had probably have gotten 30 days on probation. Uh, he actually cause the death of a person, so I can understand why he wouldn't get probation. Going back to Scott's letter, this tells me that he's going to prison at the beginning of Emerald on Tomb. He still hasn't realized that drinking and driving, causing a potential and causing a potential death, deserves more than a slap on the wrist. I agree with you. He he's got this idea that it wasn't his fault and it's a part of the character building thing. Um it would be nice if he would have realized that, hey, I caused the death of someone, I need to be put away for whatever time the legal system feels is necessary, but I guess that's just a part of his character development, so we'll just we'll just go with that. Uh, this is a, he's, he goes on, uh, this is a very interesting topic. I just finished Emerald Dawn 2, and on page 21 of the last issue, he refuses to take Guy's phone number for help with drinking problems. I think the series could have been better written if Hal took the phone numbers from Guy and said thanks instead of still denying that his drinking and driving wasn't a problem. Quote, No, I was never on the stuff for long and, quote, I'll be staying off it, don't worry. These would be expected words from an alcoholic. In fact, Guy takes more responsibility for himself by admitting that he has an anger problem and is considering getting help. In the end, Guy comes out as the better character than Hal. Love it. You know, Scott, I never really thought about that. Hal did, essentially at the end of the story, deny the fact that he had a problem. The writers are just sort of brushing off the fact that he was drinking and driving, and you actually could look at it, if you're reading into it, that this could be, well, this could be him in denial of it. So, uh, I'll give you a good catch on that. I never really took it into consideration that that might actually be how again trying to avoid the actual problem in his life good catch there Scott I, I, I will I will agree with that uh, Scott continues overall I loved Emerald Dawn 1 and 2 what an amazing story and Emerald Dawn 2 is a must read for all Sinestro fans definitely I think they really define the character of Sinestro for this point in time and it's unfortunate that in the uh, Green Lantern comics, Sinestro was never really brought up except for, you know, slivers in the uh, Guy Gardner Reborn story. Uh, I was, I've got to assume that had Gerard Jones kept on with the book, Sinestro probably would have become a major character in the story. But, you know, I guess it's the road not taken and we'll unfortunately never know. Scott continues, I bought the singles for Emerald Dawn 1 and 2. I've been using mycomicbookshop.com to pick up old issues. It's a bit expensive to ship to Canada, but I don't have much of a choice. He says, interesting in issue 3, Sinestro forms house costume on his when he's naked in the shower, but when he returns in issue 5, he transforms back into his prison outfit. Not that we need to see Hal naked in prison again, though. The prison shower scene was weird to begin with. Yeah, I think I may have commented on that, that... 
it's kind of off and on whether or not the uh, uniform is a construct or whether the uniform is something they have to put on. Sometimes when they run out of energy, they still have the costume on. Sometimes when they change into the costume, they've got clothes over it, and when they change out of it, they don't have clothes or what have you. It's it's all up to the writer's whims. Scott continues, I was also taken aback a bit when that Hal just let Willie off the hook at the end. Willie is a convicted repeat offender. Hal just lets him go free and Hal just lets him go free and potentially commit more crimes. Yeah, I thought that was a bit wonky as well. Um, Pat and Willie, although his crimes may have been just petty theft, and he may have been sort of a nice guy, he was a criminal and he was supposed to stay in jail, so I don't buy the whole no harm, no foul thing for now. Scott finishes up with, again, great job on the podcast. It's a very fun to read and then listen to your commentary. You pick up on a lot of things I miss when I read them. Later, Scott. Scott, thanks again for writing in. I really appreciate your uh, input, and I really appreciate you making me relook at the uh, sort of drinking problem with uh, Hal Jordan. I never really thought that his alcohol that he might actually have an alcohol problem. And, you know, uh, it, it does it does sort of smack of the uh, sort of denial that alcoholics have. You know, by saying, "Oh, I've only done it a couple of times." and I won't ever do it again. I won't go back to it. Yeah, unfortunately, I've heard stuff like that before. But this time out, alcohol isn't the problem that Hal Jordan's having. It's anger management issues, as we're going to find out in Green Lantern number 49. Green Lantern number 49 was cover dated February 1994 with a release date of December 21st, 1993. Cover price was $1.50 US, $1.95 Canada, and 70 pence UK. Title was Emerald Twilight Part 2, The Present. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Fred Haynes, inkers were Romeo Tangal and Dennis Kramer, colorist was Steve Matson, letterer was Albert Guzman, assistant editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. The story opens with an enraged Al Jordan flying through space. His destination, the planet Oa. His purpose, to gain the power to recreate Coast City, his home that was destroyed during the reign of the Superman. The Guardians send wave after wave of lanterns after him, first being Kihan of Varva and Lara of Jade. Hal easily defeats them and takes the rings, adding to his power. On Oa, the Guardians of the Universe marvel at what Lantern 2814 is doing as they assess his threat to them. For now, the Guardians feel that the other members of the Corps will be able to subdue him. Simultaneously, Green Lantern Tomar II is attempting to stop Hal with a Zudarian parasite that will hold him captive. Tomar pleads with Hal to stop his mad design, but only gets a ring blast to the face for his troubles. Hal grabs the Zudarian lantern and is about to finish him off when he gets a ring-powered punch to the kidneys by Jack D. Chance. The azure-ass kicker points his favorite gun at Hal, which wasn't the best of ideas since Hal easily disarms him and takes both him and Tomar's ring. More lanterns, including General Creon, Hanu, and Graf Torrin all try and stop the crazed Jordan and all fail. Even Boudicca, one of Hal's earliest new recruits, can't stop Jordan's rampage. In fact, Hal has to brutally slice off her hand in order to get her ring, leaving her bleeding out in the cold depths of space. The Guardians are starting to realize that the Corps might not be able to handle Jordan, so reluctantly they decide to call upon the one lantern they believe can beat him, 
Finally, reaching Oa, Hal is confronted by Kilowog, Hal's best friend and old drill instructor. Hal tells Kilowog that there's no way he will beat him, especially with him armed with the rings that he's collected from the various lanterns. Kilowog rebuts that it's the warrior, not the weapons, and the battle is on. The fight is brutal, but in the end, Hal is triumphant and stands tall over the fallen body of his former friend. Armed with fists full of power rings, Jordan streaks toward the central power battery and the Guardians. The Guardians order Hal to end his rampage and surrender his ring. Defiant, Hal says that he's come for the power of the central battery, and no one can keep him from it. Seeing no alternative, the Guardians play their final move in order to stop the power-mad Jordan. They summon a hooded figure from the depths of the central power battery, and as the figure moves closer, he removes his hood, revealing Hal's former instructor, Sinestro. things that I found really interesting about this book was the fact that throughout it, it's narrated by Sinestro himself. Sure, at the beginning, you don't know who's giving all the dialogue in the panels of the book, but when it comes to the reveal at the end, it's a really, really interesting story device. Also, the artwork by Fred Haynes is really nice. It's it's a good melding of Daryl Banks, what, which we're going to be getting in the future, and Pat Broderick and Mark Bright that we had in the past. So, really enjoying the art here. Again, it's a fill-in artist for the book, but he does a much better job than some of the other fill-in artists did. Uh, Gene Ha was okay, but he wasn't Bright and Tangall, and he wasn't Broderick either. Uh, Add to it a cover by Daryl Banks and Romeo Tangall, and you've got one heck of a good book with a really awesome cliffhanger really enjoying it, and it's leading up to something that's going to be pretty epic, I'm certain. But let's go ahead and get into the rest of the notes. Uh, Speaking of the cover, this is a really iconic cover with a very maniacal-looking Hal Jordan, and all sort of glowy green silhouetted silhouetted in all this glowy green light, holding up his hands with a multitude of rings on them from the uh, lanterns that he's stolen. Well, from the rings of the green lanterns that he's stolen from them. It's a really iconic image, and it gives you the feel that Hal Jordan has completely lost it, and there's no turning back for him. Uh, I know it's been covered before, and it's just an iconic image. If you haven't seen it, definitely go check it out. It'll be at the website if you want to check it out as well. Page one, you've got a decent splash page with uh, Hal Jordan with his fist, with his Green Lantern ring on it, facing towards the viewer, and he's grimacing as he's looking very determined about uh, carrying out his task of, well, I guess getting to Oa. Um, However, the artwork on his left leg is a bit, it's a bit too muscular for him. It looks, it's got all the sort of ridiculous 90s, overly bulging tendons, and it's just kind of it's kind of off-putting, but other than that, it's a really nice dynamic splash page for the first page. Pages two and three, we get another really nice uh, two-page splash here with uh, a couple of the basically Green Lantern fodder lanterns that Hal's just basically here to take out. Uh, one of them is uh, Lara, and the other one is uh, 
Keon, and I guess these were lanterns that were introduced in the Green Lantern Quarterly book. Unfortunately, I haven't covered those, but trust me, once I get done with the Guy Gardner stuff, I've got some plans for going back and doing some of the uh, stuff that I didn't really cover during this time. Plus, looking at the artwork on Lara, the uh, female Green Lantern, you kind of got to, you've kind of got the idea that Lara might have been a sort of uh, Jim, I like boobies, balance uh, creation because she is very, she is basically two circles and then the rest of her body. So, there you go. Page six. It's here. It's left kind of ambiguous whether or not Hal taking the lantern's rings is killing them or not. I mean, they're left floating dead in the cold vacuum of space without really any means of life support. So one could easily assume that they're dead, but it's not specifically shown that Hal has out and out killed someone. So it could be that Hal still has a glimmer of the hero that he was in him. Uh, Maybe he's actually charging them with uh, a bit of, or leaving the bit of lantern power where they can make it to a habitable planet, but chances are he's just offing them. Uh, I think later in the books there'll be differing differing stories of uh, what kind of happened to the lanterns. Page 10, panels 2 and 3, as uh, Tomar 2 tries to subdue Hal, he uh, tells him uh, that Hal, you're starting something that will consume you utterly. He's far too right in that that statement. Uh, this is going to basically change Hal for the longest period of time. Page 15, panel 3. Here Hal cuts off Boudicca's hand, and again, like uh, before, it's done kind of off-panel without a whole lot of gore. You don't see really the hand flying off. You see sort of a splattering of blood and a little uh, sound effect of Chuck and uh, Boudicca screaming. So, again, it's another instance of the artists and the writers at the time being able to have uh, horrible things happen in their book, but not have the book be incredibly gory. The violence is done in what I consider to be a tasteful manner. However, um, in the next panel, it's kind of done very glibly, as uh, how essentially takes the ring off Boudicca's finger and then just tosses her hand behind him as you see the sort of silhouette of Boudicca in the background, uh, shaded in green, just curled up with her holding her cut hand, or her cut arm. It's, again, really good artwork in the book. Page 16, as the uh, Guardians are trying to decide what they should do about Hal Jordan, it seems that Ganthet's the one who has the quote-unquote nuclear option to stop Hal. Uh, it's not revealed at the time, but it does, well, we know what it is now that we've heard the synopsis of it, but it's a good uh, build-up to what's going to happen. Then moving on to page 19, here with Kilowog, we could probably make a better estimation that he might not be dead. Uh, he's not in space, he's on Oa, so there's a chance that you know, Hal may have just beaten him up. However, he looks pretty badly beaten up, and Hal's taken his rings, but because he's not in space, he won't have a problem, you know, like having violent decompression or running out of oxygen or anything like that. Then, of course, on pages 21 and 22, we get the 
awesome reveal of Sinestro as he walks slowly from the central power battery. And he's got this, like I said, this white cloak with these sort of green accents toward it. He really looks good, except for one thing. When you get the reveal on page 22, his face looks a little bit off. I think the reason is because they went with a different mustache for him. Most of the time, when I think of Sinestro, I think the sort of snidely whiplash, sort of pencil-thin mustache that he has. In this page, he's got more of a Fu Manchu. He's got the uh, mustache coming down the uh, sides of his mouth. So it looks a little different, but the reveal of Sinestro having a take on Hal at the end of this book, really awesome. But that does it for notes. Usually, again, I'd cover ads in the Guy Gardner issue, but there is an ad here that I wanted to cover that's not in the Guy Gardner issue. Uh, It's another PSA for AIDS, and this time it's one with the Teen Titans. And this time it's set up with uh, Nightwing, and it looks like Wonder Girl and Gar are changeling going into the AIDS ward, and Gar says to Nightwing, "Uh, uh, Guys, is visiting this hospital really smart? I don't mind uh, taking on wildebeest, but come on, these people have AIDS. And, uh, the next panel has, can't we get sick or maybe die just by being here? Changing says, and Wonder Girl says, Gar, you don't get AIDS just by being near someone. In the next panel, uh, we've got Wonder Girl saying again, it takes more than touching or hugging or even kissing to catch HIV. And Gar is going, HIV? And Nightwing says in the next panel, it's the virus that may lead to AIDS. Many people who have it can be totally healthy for years. AIDS happen when the virus destroys your immune system and you can't fight off the disease. In the final panel, we've got Wonder, Wonder Girl saying, Gar, there is no reason to be scared. There are many different ways to prevent getting it. Look, the way to understand about AIDS is to not hide it, but to talk straight. And it's really good art. I can't tell if it's Perez doing the art, but you would think that if it was a Titans title, it might be him. But uh, it's another great AIDS PSA, and uh, for the 90s time, uh, the fact that people were trying to get information out and that DC was doing this is a really good thing. And at the bottom, it gives uh, the National AIDS Hotline as well uh, as the AIDS Project in Los Angeles and the, uh, I guess, uh, AIDS Project in New York as well. So nice PSA, and I thought it was kind of interesting that they put it in the book, and I hadn't seen it before. It's a lot better than the Green Lantern one with the uh, horribly stereotypical uh, gay characters in it. But it does kind of put Changeling off as kind of, well, not really homophobic, but just not really understanding. I mean, he goes into this hospital thinking that, oh, I can catch the AIDS just by being around them, which is obviously not true. There's a lot more you have to do to catch AIDS, so... Uh, good PSA, really enjoyed it, but uh, that covers pretty much all I wanted to cover in this book. We're going to take a break, plug a few promos in here, and when we get back, I will start on my coverage of Guy Gardner, number 18, with Guy's wonderful new armor. Hi, this is Professor Allen, and when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes, or come visit us at bookguys.ca. 
Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you noticed the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano-skin rug while Motello mixes us up a drinky drink. Motello, soda-cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear, only in podcast form and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. Every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one Glue Factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. And welcome back. Now it's time for some 90s. As we're ready to get into Guy Gardner Warrior number 18, which was cover dated March 1994 with a release date of February 1st, 1994. Cover price was $1.50 US, $1.95 Canada, and 70 p UK. Title was Emerald Fallout Part 1 Something Borrowed. Writer was Chuck Dixon, penciler was Mitch Bird, anchor was Dan. Dan Davis, letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist Stuart Shaffitz, editors were Eddie Braganza and Kevin Dooley. It's a typical day for Guy Gardner. He's busy lounging around the apartment of General Glory, reading the paper, while the star-spangled hero works on breaking up the wall he threw Guy through less than a week ago, issue 16 to be precise. The general apologizes to Guy, and Guy says that there are no hard feelings when suddenly his ring overloads, destroying the repaired wall and showing images of a deranged Hal doing horrific things. General Glory grabs the stunned guy and asks just what happened, which Guy has no clue about. Cut to the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier, where Tony Stark is on another drunken bender and... Oh, wait, no, strike that. Militias in some secret quorum base throwing a temper tantrum because he didn't get to go toe-to-toe with Guy Gardner. The quorum tell Militia to calm down, but that isn't going to happen as he rams headfirst in some armed guards attempting to take him down. Finally, a female quorum member pushes a button on a remote control and the armored assassin falls to the ground, unable to move. Some time has passed, and Guy is sitting at the lab at JLI headquarters. It's been almost a week since Guy's ring has quit working and Guy's reluctantly recruited Ted Cord, aka Blue Beetle, to try and figure it out. Ted hints that Guy might be having some performance issues with the ring, of course, and says that it might never work again. Guy says not to even think that would happen as he steps out for some fresh air. 
As Guy ponders his predicament while walking the mean streets of NYC, he happens upon some thugs shaking down a convenience store clerk and his daughter. Guy rushes in to take down the hoodlums, but soon finds himself being shot at along with the thugs by the shopkeeper. Hightailing it back to JLI headquarters, Guy demands that Blue Beetle make him, a, make him superpowered. Beetle acquiesces, but he says the heroics will have to come from tech rather than magic rings. Guy doesn't care. He just needs to be a hero again. Meanwhile, above Earth, a small spaceship carrying a single occupant is crashing through the atmosphere. Ejecting from the ship just before it explodes, we see the pilot was none other than Green Lantern Bivix, who has lost contact with Graf and the other GLs and has had his own ring disintegrate. But as he falls planetward, his EVA suit starts to give out, making it unlikely that he'll be able to deliver his warning to Guy Gardner. Cut back to the JLI headquarters where Guy is trying out his new... exosuit. Ted says the suit is a prototype along the lines of the one which Booster is wearing, which doesn't leave Guy with much confidence. But after a quick instruction on the suit's defenses, Guy heads into the JLI version of the Danger Room to take on some battle drones. Using the built-in force field and enhanced strength of the suit, Guy tears through the battle drone with little effort. Pleased with the results, Guy says he'll keep the suit and heads out of the embassy. But before he can leave, Wonder Woman confronts Guy about Tora and where she went. Diana tells Guy not to get his hopes up, and Guy says not to worry, because he's a changed man. At the same time, Militia is expressing the same sentiment, but only so the female quorum member will let him out of his paralyzed state. Saying that they're still tracking Gardner, the quorum has graciously given the metal mercenary one more chance. Meanwhile, Guy is rocketing to the frozen north in search of his former love. Spotting her on an ice floe, Guy lands a jet car frightening off the seals Ice was watching. Guy tries his best to convince Tora that he's changed and wants to make amends. Tora is skeptical, but she sees the sincerity in Guy and starts to warm to his advances. However, the touching moment is ruined by the untimely arrival of Militia. Okay, I've known this unfortunately for a while, but this book is uh, out of sync by one cover date month, and I realize that. However, come zero hour, or the zero month actually, the Green Lantern and the Guy Gardner books will sync up again. And I basically have to do a show without covering a Guy Gardner book to make things come out on the same cover date. So, rather than do that, I'll just have to be off a little right now. I mean, there's nothing major in between the books that should break up the reading order, there are some things that happen in this book that won't be happening until uh, issue 50 of the Green Lantern book, but taken in context, it's really not that out of place, and I didn't want to have to, you know, when it started out, they started out with the same cover date. Green Lantern got published two issues, uh, or two issues a month a couple of months back, and so it got ahead, and then it skipped a month and got behind, so... Rather than skip doing a Guy Gardner issue, I just decided to go on. So hopefully it's not throwing you guys off. I think it'll all work out in the end. Uh, starting with notes, uh, the cover, the 90s called. And they're here to say, this is a ridiculously goofy set of armor. I mean, this this is something that I think Cable would go, hey, look, you really need to tone it down a bit uh, from the uh, ridiculous 
sort of weird silver things on his shoulders and hands and the spiky gloves and the overly detailed pistons around his uh, abdomen and legs and the strange canisters growing out of his back. It's just one really 90s cover. Page 1, panel 1. I've got to think it's either the fact that General Glory is kind of cheap or that General Glory is actually very into these doing-things-himself type person. He's a do-it-himself type guy. But why is General Glory bricking up the wall that got destroyed in the battle between him and Guy a couple of issues ago? He should contract that out to someone. It probably won't be up to code, especially in New York City. And also, I'm betting if he's not a member of the Teamsters, he's probably going to get in trouble for just doing that. Pages 2 and 3, as I said at the beginning of the uh, synopsis of this, uh, well, at the beginning of my notes, uh, there are a couple of images here on these pages that don't really happen until issue 50 of Green Lantern, but they really don't detract from the story. You just get the idea that Hal and Sinestro fight and that Kilowog, you know, got knocked out as well. So it does come out of order, but I don't think it throws the book off all that much. Page 5, panel 1. We come to find out that this super-powered super-soldier loses his power when he goes under a bridge. Pretty ridiculous. I mean, is he powered by the same satellite that broadcasts XM radio? Because I know whenever I go under a bridge, I lose my power for my XM. So maybe it's the same satellite that he's getting the power from. Then on page 7, panel 3, uh, the super-powered super-soldier also has a remote shut-off. So you've got to kind of wonder, is this a human under there? Is it some sort of cyborg? What's going on? Because she just basically takes a little clicker remote, and then suddenly he's down on the floor. Kind of odd. Page 8, panels 2 and 3, we get uh, Blue Beetle going, maybe you're thinking about it too much, as he's examining Guy's ring, and next panel he says, well, if you weren't worrying about it too much, maybe it would work just fine. And Guy says, hey, are we talking about the same thing here? So, erectile dysfunction jokes in the book. Too bad Guy didn't have Cialis to power his ring. Page 11, panel 4. I thought it kind of was kind of amusing that after uh, stealing Ted's sandwich, Guy spits it out after learning that it was baked tofu and sesame sprouts on spinach bread. Ugh, no real man would eat anything like that. Or quiche, for that matter. Page 12, this really kind of upset me. Uh, it's this image of Bivix uh, falling from his spacecraft and uh, essentially burning up in the atmosphere. Now, his reveal over these few panels is really nice. It starts out with just his dialogue on the previous page, and it ends on, uh, on page 12, panel 2, with a really nice image by Bird and Davis of uh, Bivix. He looks very lizard-like. He's got sort of more of a crocodile or alligator type look, but he still looks like the Bivix that was in the Staten books uh, in the Yesterday's Sin, Yesterday Sin storyline. I really am kind of upset that this might be the ending for him. Uh, he was really a fun character, and this is really a good drawing of him. Again, I'm liking uh, the change in artwork with, that we're getting with uh, Mitch Bird and Dan Davis here. And continuing on with the uh, artwork, uh, here on page 13, panel 3, 
we get the fact that Bird does some really great facial expressions uh, with uh, Guy looking really shocked when Ted tells him that the suit is a prototype the, for the one that uh, Booster Gold is using. And then you've got Ted in the foreground kind of silhouetted, smugly grinning, knowing that he kind of got Guy's goat there. So, again, good artwork by Mitch Bird here. Page 15, I think it's really fun that Guy asks if he has the strength of 20 real men or 20 wimps, or 20 guys like Blue Beetle, which I think you could take that as an insult to Blue Beetle. But again, the the dialogue from Chuck Dixon and the artwork from Burden Davis is just really making this book a fun read for me. I'm really enjoying it. And it comes again in, on page 16, panel 4, with this... Uh, picture of Wonder Woman. She, the way Bird draws females is they're very hippie. They've got very muscular legs. They don't look waifish, but they've got a sort of stylized look. It's not ridiculously over the top like you'd see in the sort of X books of the 1990s with Jim Lee's incredibly huge out of proportion females. Uh, Wonder Woman looks muscular and she looks physical, but she also looks feminine. I think it's because Bird decides to draw the female form with a bit of curves on them. And I really like that. I That's what I like about my women. Uh, getting a little bit too much revelation about myself. I'll shut up now. Again, uh, another point about re- me really loving the art. On page 19, panel 5 we get a really great look at the facial expression of Guy as he's trying to force himself to keep calm and not say anything rash after Ice chided him and called him insensitive. This image really shows that Guy is truly trying not to be the jerk that he's always been, that he's actually trying to change after all he's been through with the aliens and the Yesterday's Sin storyline. So really like the character development and really like the artwork. And then the final splash page on page 22. I've got a few things about this. Again, artwork by Bird on Ice. Very nice. Uh, Ice is incredibly curvy and her outfit uh, although it is got the sort of ridiculously low cut thing is not as ridiculous as like what you see on Catwoman. So you've got that. Um then also, I've got to wonder the the design on Guy's armor. What the heck are the tubes on the back of them? Are they power cells? Wouldn't it be a pain in the butt? I mean, he was supposed to fly this plane to meet ice. I'm assuming he had to sit. Wouldn't that get in the way of the chair? It's just got to be uncomfortable. And finally, we get the ultimate showdown of who has the most ridiculous 90s get-up on this panel. Let me tell you, it'd be tough to make a choice here. But that does it for notes for the issue. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of the ads and see if there's some ridiculous 90 stuff in there as well. And ironically enough, the uh, front inside cover has a new Dark Knight declares total war on Gotham City's underworld. As Night Quest continues to make comics history, now he's really ready to do some damage. And we get the gold-plated, blue hood, spiky gloves of death, with laser pointers on his gloves, as bats. For Shadow of the Bat number 25, Detective Comics 672, and Batman 506, beginning in January. 
Oh yes, 90s. Thank you for bringing us this this character. Again, uh, might as well plug it away. Uh, hey Kids Comics, which you can now hear at the Two True Freaks website, uh, did their epic coverage of Nightfall a while back. And actually, if you go to Two True Freaks, I think they may be compiling the old episodes there. And if you want to listen to uh, Andrew and Michael's coverage of Nightfall, you can check it out there. It's good stuff. A few pages in, we get the DC Vertigo Sandman trading cards. I think I covered this before. Uh, the next page is the uh, American Comics and Entertainment page with uh, Hot Comics. See what kind of ridiculous stuff they have. Uh, it does say that the prices are slashed, so again, the uh, the speculator market may be starting to go bust here. I'm um, not seeing anything. I'm seeing Exo Man of War for 35 uh, $7.50 for Har- oh, $50 for 2 and 4 of Harbinger. The Valiant titles send- seem to be, you know, pretty popular. Uh, nothing really out of the ordinary. Prices are definitely coming down. Speculator market. Oh, Dr. Mirage. Gold cover, $50. Uh, I guess, I don't know. I've said all I want to say on this. A few pages in, we get the fight for possession of the deadliest weapon in the universe. Starts in The Flash with guest star Colin Farrell from The Dark Stars. Uh, Issues 18 through 20 of the, uh, I guess, of The Dark Stars uh, has The Flash in it. So, we, Wally's crossing over there. Next page, we get a really nice panel of Tim Drake and the Huntress dropping in on it looks like a weird sort of church killing with a uh, priest and or at least a guy in robes and a mask carrying a couple of pistols uh, I guess it's for the uh, story that ran in Showcase 94 Robin 7 and Showcase 94 number 6 called Benedictions uh, it says Gotham gang wars will never be the same it's a really nice picture of uh, Tim and the Huntress dropping in on these guys it's, you know breaking through like a glass, maybe a glass window or whatever, but a really nice dynamic uh, piece of artwork here. A few more pages in, we get Green Lantern Corps quarterly, blah, Green Lantern Corps quarterly ends with a bang, rip, crunch, slash, and woompa. As you see, Jack T. Chance, our ridiculously over-the-top Green Lantern, fighting with, who else? Lobo. So Lobo had to make an appearance over there as well. Neat. And the next page we get the image of uh, some bald-headed guy and then Clark Kent in black uniform kicking the heck out of some uh, thugs with a bottom panel of Clark Kent sitting in front of his computer. And it's for the novel Under a Red Sun. I guess written by John Francis Moore, Edward Verrata, Sorry, Eduardo Barreto, Carrie Gamble, and Dennis Shanky with Sherilyn Van Valkenburg and Glenn Whitmore. Um, I haven't heard Michael and uh, Jeffrey talk about this, so maybe we'll get to this later in the series over at uh, From Christ to Crisis. See what they have to think about it. The DC subscription page has the wonderful new character from the Bloodline story, Anima, front and center, as the uh, character to uh, promote the new DC books. And 
you can pick up your subscription of Anima for a mere $21 for 12 issues. <sighs> Anima. She's here. Then the next page is an actual superhero that I think I'd want to read. It's, if you can't keep up, get out of the way. And it's a very stylized picture of the Wally West Flash, written by uh, Mark Wade and penciled by Waringo and inked by Marzan. Uh, good-looking stuff. It's a very stylized Wally. He looks a bit more, a bit more muscular. The, uh, the head's a bit more square or rectangular. He's got a really good jawline, but uh, he's got the uh, flash lightning coming off his uh, the lightning bolts on his ears. So it's not quite as dramatic as what we'll get with the Ivan Reese stuff and the New 52 and the stuff uh, with uh, just prior to that, but it's a good-looking piece of artwork. Really enjoy it. The back inside cover has a picture of Captain Picard, Jordy LaForge, Beverly Crusher, and Deanna Troy, the most worthless member of the Next Generation crew. It's promoting the four star-spanning sagas of Star Trek The Next Generation that DC put out, uh, with stories by Jan Michael Friedman, John Delancey, who was Q, Pablo Marcos, Gordon Purcell, Matt Haley, Peter Krause, and Carlos Garzon. The trade, papers back was, um, the trade paperback was on sale throughout the galaxy in February. It was probably just on Earth, but they had to mention that it was throughout the galaxy. And the back outside cover comes with a giant basketball with the words NBA Jam smashing through the uh, back cover saying, Jam at home, March 4th. A little bit of innuendo there, but it's an advertisement for the game NBA Jam, which had stylized members of the bas- of various basketball teams. I know they had a lot of the major ones like Scottie Pippen at the time and Oh, I'm trying to think if they had Michael Jordan on there. I'm not certain if they did, but you basically played two-on-two basketball, and you could do ridiculous over-the-top basketball slam dunks. It was a fun game. It was a fun port as well. Hopefully next time out we'll have uh, some images to take a look at. But that does it for ads. That does it for notes. That does it for the issue. And uh, I have to say, this time out, we're actually kind of lucky because... This time you can pick up the Green Lantern books, at least, in trade paperback form. You can find them in Green Lantern Emerald Twilight trade paperback and Green Lantern Emerald Twilight New Dawn trade paperback. Also, you can pick the uh, comics up digitally on the Comixology app. So, if you want to get the Green Lantern issues, they're out there for pretty easy access. Sadly, Guy Gardner, not so much. But... That does it for the show. I want to thank you guys all for listening, and I want to make sure that you come back for episode 50 because it's a big turning point, and to celebrate it, I've asked not one, but two great podcast luminaries to come on the show to talk about the issues and uh, maybe con them into doing uh, synopses of the uh, issues as well. Who knows? Uh, But definitely come back for episode 50 of Just One of the Guys. It will be here in one week. Hope you will as well. Until then, we'll see you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, 
humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read down the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening song for today's show was Ring of Fire by the amazing Johnny Cash. You can find Ring of Fire in a myriad places. However, the place you should go to if you want to purchase or download the song would be Amazon.com. And when you go to Amazon.com, make sure you go to the link at the Two True Freaks website, located at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Go to the top of the page, click on the Amazon banner, and you'll be transported to Amazon.com, where you can buy the CD, buy the album, or buy the song individually itself and download it. Two True Freaks runs primarily on money that it gets from the Amazon.com donations, as well as donations from listeners like you. So please, if you can, anytime you're shopping at Amazon.com, make sure you go to the Two True Freaks link.